American kind of question. Dr. Bard, what's the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? That sounds like a, something that some seminary student would ask. Dr. Bard thought about it carefully for a moment, and then he answered with great grace and childlike simplicity, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Our text this morning begins with the verse in the Bible where most of us first learned about the love of God, John 3.16. This verse is undoubtedly the most well-known and dearly loved verse in the whole Bible. When Bible translators begin to translate God's word into a language where somebody has ever heard it in their own native tongue, this is the first verse translated, John 3.16. When children begin to memorize scripture, this is probably the first whole verse that they learn, John 3.16. In like fact, this verse is so important to so many people that if you go to a sporting event or watch a sporting event on television, you may, in the middle of all of that talk and chatter and, and, and things, see somebody holding up a sign that says simply, John 3.16. For to know this one verse of Scripture may mean the difference between eternal condemnation and eternal life. So I invite you to turn and look with me at, verse, at John 3.16 and the verses that follow. We'll read verses 16 down through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is a powerful passage, it's very full paragraph, let me just boil it down to two truths that I want us to see this morning. The first is simply this, God loves sinners. God loves sinners. The first issue we face in this text is how to properly understand God so loved the world. I'm afraid that the way it's most often expounded does not tell us what God intends for us to hear. Let me explain. In expounding this verse, we might say, oh, consider the vastness of the world. Consider the masses of humanity. Imagine that God loves each and every person on the face of the earth. Now, there's certainly some truth to that. It was undoubtedly amazing to the Jews to think that God loved Gentiles. To hear that God loved the whole world, people from every tribe and nation even despise Gentiles. And it's, a, and it's undoubtedly true that God loves us personally, not just in some general principle of love. But this measuring the love of God by the vastness of humanity does not begin to communicate the radical truth that this verse holds for us. For when we've added up love for every person on earth, what do we have? but human love made greater. And when we have added up the so many billion cases of love, we still have only a finite number 
which cannot begin to describe the infinite love of God. Furthermore, not only is this vastness of the world approach insufficient to adequately describe the love of God, but it leads us to distortion. For if our emphasis focuses on how God loves every one of us individually, every single person on earth, then before long we're saying, oh, the value of each person. Oh, the beauty God must see in each person. Oh, how could we ever condemn anyone for being whatever God made him when God loves him? You see, the danger is that we end up glorying not in the love of God, but in the love of ourselves. Our self-importance, our self-worth, our individual rights. And then when we read something in the Bible that denies our independence or condemns something that we do and are, we feel like we have the right to reject that because God loves us all as we are. He made us that way. B.B. Warfield reminds us clearly what this text invites us to think of is the greatness of the love of God, not the greatness of the human soul message of our text is that God loves sinners. Consider what God this is who loves sinners. He is the God who dwells in unapproachable light that no one can fathom. He is the God who is so pure as to to not even look upon wickedness. He is the God who dwells in the majesty and glory of absolute righteousness and goodness in flaming purity and stainless perfection. He is the God before whom all the angels of heaven cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the God who needs nothing, who needs no one, who is perfectly complete in himself, so much so that he is not affected by any of the action of his creatures. This God, who sets in majestic perfection on his heavenly throne and does whatever he pleases, this God, loves the world. Make no mistake, that's what it says, the world. Could John, who uses that word so often, really have meant to use it here? As a renowned theologian, B.B. Warfield points out, the world, John tells us, is just a synonym of all that is evil and noisome and disgusting. There is nothing in it that can attract God's love. Nothing that can even justify the love of any good man. The world is what Christians labor to overcome. The world is what Christians are forbidden to do, forbidden to love. Why? Because, as John tells us later, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father. Indeed, John tells us the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We have only to read the news to know how disgusting the world really can be. The world, John tells us elsewhere, is partners with our sinful flesh and with the devil himself as the enemies of God. Those are three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Dr. Warfield explains, when we are told that God loves the world, it is as if we are told that God loves our sinful flesh and the devil himself. 
But you see the point of our text? God loves sinners. This is where the greatness and the majesty and the infinitude, the incomprehensible, incomprehensible wonder of the love of God lies. God loves sinners. These days, some of the most bitter and furious words you might ever hear are words delivered to a convicted criminal before his sentencing in what's known as the um, victim um, impact statement. Words by people who that criminal made to suffer. Here parents face the murderer who tortured and killed their son. Here uh, face the outrage uh, of the the rapist who violated and, and brutalized their daughter. These words are powerfully delivered, well-deserved. So could you even imagine the victimized family looking the evil murderer or rapist in the face and saying, Sir, I love you. It's just impossible. How could they do anything but hate such a one with perfect hatred? Oh, but beyond all comprehension, Here we read that God, who has been betrayed and cursed and assaulted by his creatures, God loves the world. You see, it's not the vastness of the world that defies God's love, that defines God's love. It's the magnitude of the world's wickedness which God's love transcends. God loves. Where do we see that love displayed? Well, certainly in the incarnation, John starts his gospel with this. The eternal word of God, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And now here it is again in verse 17. God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, which it deserves, but to save the world. But even more, on the cross we see God's love for sinners. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though some good man might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. There on the cross, the innocent, unique, holy son of God named Jesus bore the justified wrath of God against a sinful world. There he completely endured its fury, satisfied its justice, paid the debt sentence which our sins deserve. Why? Why would he? Why would the Father let him? What cause is great enough, powerful enough, intense enough to produce such an act? Only the incomprehensible love of God. God loves sinners that much. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You who thought you were beyond hope. You who knowing the wretchedness of your own heart 
things that nobody else knows about you. Perhaps you secretly thought that your sin was too big, too heinous, too frequently repeated, never to find peace with God, never to be clean again. You need to hear the good news. God loves sinners. Can you imagine this? God loves sinners. Have you ever heard such a thing? God loves sinners. It must be too good to be true. No, God loves sinners. Perhaps others who know you have long given up on you. That doesn't change the fact. God loves sinners. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It reaches beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. No wonder we turn back week after week, month after month, year after year, for centuries now to celebrate the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. No wonder, for here the very best news of the world is heard. Announced again, celebrated again, received again, until the end of the world, God loves us sinners. So how do we respond? Well, that brings us to our second point. Trust Jesus and live. Trust Jesus and live. Most every announcement, good or bad, requires some kind of response. The same is true of this announcement of God's love for sinners. His love displayed in the giving of his son demands some response. So actually there are two possible responses that are outlined in these verses. The first is the response which comes naturally to us when we're guilty. We run and cover up. Even as a child, you knew this, right? You knew this response. How did you respond when your mother was calling you and you knew that you had disobeyed and if she found out, you would be in big trouble? Just the sound of her voice, it chills up your back and you wanted to run the opposite direction and cover up. You see, when we're guilty, which we all are, we instinctively want to run and cover up. That's exactly what this text describes. In verse 19 to 20, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. Actually, there are several key words throughout this section that trace the stages of this natural response. In verse 18, it's he does not believe. In verse 19, it's he loved darkness. Verse 20, hates the light and finally will not come to the light. The result of this natural response, according to verse 18, is that we all stand condemned. Dr. Leon Morris, who's one of the experts on the Gospel of John, explains it this way. It's a fairly lengthy quote. Let me read what he says. Faced with the light that has come into the world, men usually prefer the darkness. John is not saying that God has decreed that men will do such and such a thing and be condemned. It's not God's sentence with which he's concerned here. He's telling us, rather, how the process works. Men choose the darkness 
and their condemnation lies in that very fact. They shut themselves up in darkness. They cut themselves off from the light. Why did they do this? Because the deeds are evil. Immersed in wrongdoing, they have no wish to be disturbed. They refuse to be shaken out of their comfortable sinfulness, so they reject the light that comes to them. They set their love on darkness, and in this way, they condemn ourselves. God says that in Romans 1, and he speaks of us suppressing, holding down the truth by our wicked works. And for that, the wrath of God comes. I suspect this describes some of us. You might say that you don't really love the darkness, but if God gets a little too close to your own secret life and I get exposed, you just back off from whatever is shining that light on you, whether it's church or whether it's a Christian friend, someone who says a little bit too much. You see, that's our natural response. Morally, all of us sinners are nocturnal creatures. <laughs> we like the secrecy of darkness. It feels safe when nobody can see what we're doing, what we are. But that's the way of condemnation. That's the way of those who perish, who have no light. Oh, but there's another response, a proper response, the response of life. And this is what our text calls us to do, to trust Jesus and live. Now, that's my way of summarizing what God calls, the, how God calls us to respond. Let's look at some of the words our text actually uses. Verse 16, he says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In verse 18, again, whoever believeth in him is not condemned. Believing and faith are the same thing. Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. The apostle John loves the verb to believe. He uses it 98 times, I think, in his gospel. But to believe is not just to mentally agree with Christ. It means to actively entrust ourselves to Christ. So uh, uh, look at verse 21. Here we have different words. Whoever lives by the truth, literally whoever does the truth, comes to the light. God calls us to believe in Jesus enough that we act on it. We do the truth. And what is it that we're to do? Earn our own salvation? No, we can't do that. We, to do the truth is to come to the light. That means we put our fear of exposure away, believing we have no reason to hide anymore. We come to Christ. We entrust ourselves to him, believing that he did not come to condemn us, but to save us, just as he promised in verse 17. So we're called to believe, to do the truth, to come to the light, put this all together, and what do you have? Trust Jesus and live. In closing, let me give you an illustration of these two responses. There have been several of these incidents. I looked uh, uh, up trying to find specific ones. There have been uh, many of them. The latest one I heard was about a dozen years ago. And what happens is 
on some remote island in the South Pacific, they'll find some Japanese soldiers, now old men, who are uh, still hiding out in the bush. They have no idea the war's over. They're guarding the post that they were given all these years later, and suddenly they're found. They're found by the people that are the enemy. At first they pull back deeper into the jungle, but the enemy doesn't go away. Not only that, the enemy is telling them the war's over. There's no reason to continue to rebel or to, to resist. Come on out. Japan and America are friends now. If you're one of those persistent old soldiers and for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you've been persevering, how do you respond? I, I, I suspect we would either run deeper into the hills or we would come out with cannons blazing, taking out as many people as we could in the process. Uh, but what if you began to believe that maybe it was true, maybe, just maybe, it was true? Well, on the one hand, it would be easy. Hey, the war's over. Come out. Lay down your weapons. Be welcomed into a whole new world. On the other hand, it would be so hard. To believe would demand that you expose yourself, make yourself vulnerable. Go against those of your friends who don't believe and step out into the light knowing that if this is not true, you're a dead man. So what should you do? Come out fighting and die for no purpose in a useless firefight? That would seem safe. Would require no change of attitude, but it would be stupid and deadly. But the ones who would live are those who, believing the unbelievable, laid down their weapons, walked out into the light, entrusting themselves in faith to the very ones that they've always considered the enemy. Folks, that's where we stand with God. The war is over. It ended at the cross. There Jesus paid the debt, endured death, defeated Satan, and conquered hell. But some of us still hold up in a cave, still a fugitive, still at war with God. Today I announce to you, God loves sinners. God loves us so much he gave his one and only son, Jesus, who died to end the enmity between God and you. So I call you, lay down your weapons. Expose your weakness. Show your position. You have nothing to fear anymore. I call you to believe the good news enough to entrust yourself to Jesus and begin to live under his rule. Oh, I know it sounds risky, but it's true. It's the way of life. Trust Jesus to live. For if you continue in this hopeless war with God, you will die in your sins and perish forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, 
We kid each other, but you know how much we are at war with you. You know, Father, how we love the darkness, how our flesh just eats up the darkness and resists the light. Father, we feel so safe in our own little self-made cave. We convince ourselves that we can fight against you and it won't matter. We can convince ourselves even that you love us as we are. We don't need to deal with our sins. And we can't convince one another otherwise. Father, I ask that you would reach deep into our hearts and show us ourselves and show us insanity of resisting you, of turning our back on your love, of thinking that you don't know us, you don't understand us, that if you really knew us, you wouldn't care. Oh, Father, grant us the grace of repentance and faith to trust in Jesus and live. We pray in his name.